I already greeted you, so I can't greet you again. But good morning, maybe. Um, it's good to be with you. I'm so thankful uh, to be able to bring the word this morning. We are in the midst of a series on Ephesians, on Ephesians chapter 4 especially. I want to begin with a little bit of a, an old reference, the 1976 movie Network. This is not social network. It's not about Facebook. This is Network. It was written as a satire of network television. You remember network television? Remember that? Especially the manipulation of the news. Watching the news in the era of Watergate and the Vietnam War, screenplay writer Patty Chayefsky, he realized that, quote, the American people are angry and they want angry shows. And so he wrote a movie about anger. Now, network centers on Howard Beale, an aging anchorman who's fired for declining ratings. And he snaps, and he goes rogue on air. His rant is epic. He's trying to unsettle his audience, and this is what he says. He says, I want you to get mad. I want you to get up right now, sit up, go to your windows, open them and stick your head out and yell, and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. Things have got to change, but first you've got to get mad. And all of a sudden, the movie shows Americans everywhere screaming out their windows. They're mad. The screenplay could have easily been written in 2020. <laughs> Anger, outrage, it's in. The recent tagline online, I don't know if you saw this, but if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Right? Resentment, protest, we're an angry nation. It's in our schools. Hey, UVA, in a history class about some very real historical oppression, the professor told us grad students the goal of the course. She said, I want them to get angry. I want them to get angry. We are an angry people living in an angry culture. And though anger can be cathartic, it's an unpleasant emotion. Beale, when he says, I'm mad as hell, it's an intriguing swear, isn't it? Because hell is a place of anger, of wrath. And anger can be hellish, a prison that blocks out gratitude and joy and even God. And as we've seen right here in Charlottesville, right, anger is dangerous. It gives way to violence. So which is it? Is it constructive? Is it destructive? Is anger a means of social change? Or does it always end in violence? What do we do about anger? This May, we're in the midst of a sermon series on Ephesians in which we're looking about renewal. What is this new life in Christ like? And Chris last week talked, talked to us about what it means to learn Christ is to learn him, to be schooled by him. And to be schooled by him means that we need to address our anger. We need to address our anger. So let's look at our text. It's Ephesians 4, 20 and 23 through 5 through 2. You can look on in your bulletin or in your Bible. will be using the ESV. So first, verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Now let's skip down to 23. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds, 
and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father in heaven, we are a people of unclean anger. Would you purify us? Would you purify us from all bitterness and wrath, malice and slander? Oh, Lord, we ask that we would meet with you, that you would show yourself to us in all your tenderheartedness, in all your forgiveness. Give us Christ. Amen. So a quick word, this passage speaks to anger and words. And so next week, we're going to look at words. We're going to, I'm going to preach the same passage, but we're going to look at words. And this week, we're looking at anger. Anger. So first, I have four points for you. Four points. The first point is an assessment of anger. An assessment of anger. What is anger? It says in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. So we need to understand what anger is. Now, we know anger, don't we? <laughs> On a road trip, the kids are bickering in the back. And finally, dad has had enough. And he explodes, dishing out threats and imprecations. Right? You're grounded for life. <laughs> anger can be an explosive volcano, or it can be a simmering soup. Never quite reaching boiling point, but always hot. A wife is offended by an insensitive word from her husband, and she shuts down, giving him the silent treatment. It's a different response, but the same thing, anger. It can be an unthinking reaction. You scream a curse word, and you punch the wall, not caring that you could break your hand. You throw a plate on the ground, unthinking. Or anger can fuel a strategic precision strike years in the making, a cut calculated for maximum impact. Anger. In chemistry, certain elements bond more easily with other elements by sharing electrons. And anger shares some electrons with other emotions. It forms covalent bonds with fear, hurt, anxiety, Envy, protectiveness, all of those can, can marry anger. And sometimes anger masks those emotions, right? 
Others of us feel anger to be the one unallowable emotion, and so it's stuffed down only to sneak up in other ways. Anger is physical. Our bodies feel angry. Your eyes flare. Your body temperature rises. Your heart beats faster. You breathe heavier. The Hebrew word for anger literally means the burning of the nose. It's physical. It's physiological. Anger is also mental. You put your grievances on repeat in your mind. She always treats me like that. Or you rehearse conversations that you want to have. You are the prosecuting attorney. And in this case, you're also the judge. Merriam-Webster defines anger as a strong feeling of displeasure and usually of antagonism. Displeasure. So if we were to boil anger down, it's, I don't like that. Or, I'm against that. In other words, anger is judgmental. Comedian George Carlin once quipped, I'm not an angry person, just very disappointed and contemptuous of my fellow humans' choices. <laughs> it's judgmental, right? To be against something is to make a moral judgment. You see, anger is evidence that we are hardwired for right and wrong. We intuitively believe in justice. You can see this even from an early age. A toddler whose older brother steals her toy gets angry. She feels it was wrong. And so she hits him in anger. And then he gets mad. That's not right. The Oxford English Dictionary defines anger as, quote, the strong feeling that you have when something has happened that you think is bad and unfair. Do you hear that moral dimension to anger? Moral relativists get angry too which is to recognize some standard that's beyond ourselves. Anger actually points us to God, to a moral foundation for anger. You see, to be angry is to realize that there are things worth being angry about, that all is not right. Injustice is real, and so anger is real. Our capacity for anger hints at a God who has judged some things worthy of anger. Indeed, we as Christians believe in a God who has taken anger into his very name. God names himself to Moses in Exodus 34. Listen to this. He says, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Anger is part of God's name, and it is exercised in judgment against sin. God is rightfully angered at sin. And yet, his name also tells us that his patience, his anger is patient. I'm slow to anger. His mercy outlasts his anger. So here's the assessment of anger. It's I'm against that. And it's a communicable attribute, meaning that God feels angry and we can feel anger. So why then does Paul warn us in verse 26, be angry and do not sin? 
That leads us to our second point, the danger of anger. The danger of anger. It almost rhymes. The danger of anger, you know, like danger of anger. Anyway. Be angry and do not sin. Paul's quoting Psalm 4-4 there. In Psalm 4, David is in distress from others. His honor is at stake, and he's angry. And yet he exhorts in the psalm, he says, be angry and do not sin. In other words, anger is the natural reaction to his circumstances, and yet he's warning, hey, don't sin. It's as if in anger our immunity to sin is significantly lowered. Anger is dangerous. Tread carefully when you're angry. Now, there's been a long-standing wisdom tradition, even outside of the Christian tradition, on the danger of anger. Thomas Jefferson advised, quote, when angry, count to 10 before you speak. And if very angry, count to 100. <laughs> Mark Twain, anger is an acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than to anything on which it is poured. Or the Buddha. He says, holding on to anger is like grasping a hot coal with the intent of throwing it someone else. You are the one who gets burned. Anger, it's dangerous. Now Paul has two more cautions to add to this. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't hold on to anger for more than a day. Like, deal with and discard anger daily. When it comes to anger, a night of sleep will not help. Time will not heal anger. And verse 27 then explains why. It says, and give no opportunity to the devil. Anger is an opportunity for the devil. There's something devilish about anger. Revelation 12, 12 speaks of, quote, the great wrath of the devil. And the great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, he once preached that Satan's chief emotion was anger. Quote, for he knows not how to love. Wrath is his very soul, as hatred is his very life. He knows nothing of gentleness, nothing of affection. If Satan's root sin was envy, then anger was right close behind it. He rages that he is not God, that he is not in control. And so Paul says there's something demonic, there's something dangerous, so dangerous that it's even satanic about anger. And that's when anger goes really wrong. Like, you know the time when you don't get what you want and you just throw a fit? Have you ever seen a fit of a two or three-year-old? They, they go bonkers. Like, like they just lose it. And friends, some of us do that too. Life doesn't go our way, and we rage our lack of control, that we are not God. We want our way. How dare you treat me like that? I deserve more. Anger can be godlike. The angrier we are, the less clearly we see, especially ourselves. Biblical counselor Ed Welch notes, quote, the more angry we are, the more right we believe we are. 
So we, don't, we do not have a problem when we're angry. Other people have problems. And that's why we're angry, because other people have all these problems. That's, that's what anger does. When we are angry, the more angry we are, the more we think that we are right. And we miss the ways that we might be wrong. That's the danger of righteous anger, is that we always think that our anger is righteous anger. Now, the Proverbs warn about anger. It says that wise people are slow to anger. They overlook offenses. Fools, on the other hand, let loose their anger and cause all sorts of destruction. Proverbs 29 says, An angry person stirs up conflict, and a hot-tempered person commits many sins. In fact, the Proverbs say, Do not be friends with an angry person so you don't become like them. Bitter people turn others bitter. Now we know this, even as far back as the 1960s, and probably before then, anger was seen as bad for your health. A large-scale review of the literature has confirmed that anger is associated with heart disease and even heart attacks. It's bad for you. It's dangerous. And not only is anger devilish, in verse 30, anger grieves the Holy Spirit. It comes between us and God. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Now, in verse 31, Paul breaks down anger into species. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Bitterness is anger that's not dealt with in a day. It's like uh, the milk left out overnight, so it's spoiled. And as you pour it over your cereal, it spoils that. It just continues to spoil grumbling and complaining. That's the fruit of bitterness. You are the victim, and you've always been the victim. Wrath. We already talked about that temper tantrum. Wrath. We just lose your mind. You go bonkers. Wrath. What about malice? It's a different kind of anger. A deep-seated, often unexplainable desire to see another suffer. Have you ever wanted to see someone who's hurt you suffer? Maybe not like badly, like just a little bit. Like, I just wish they wouldn't get that raise. Malice. That's what anger does to us. It twists us. It makes us mean and ill will. The danger of anger is so real that Paul says, put it all away in verse 31. He's trying to name these different species so you have a holistic view. There's not, there's not one type of anger that's holy or devoid of these bad attributes. So he says, put it all away. Get rid of it. So what is anger then? It's, anger is like nuclear energy, right? Only when it is closely controlled, contained, and serving the greater good is anger not devastatingly destructive. And rarely, friends, does anger serve the greater good. James says, this, says it differently. In chapter 1, verse 19, he says, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
You know the current faith and anger that our culture has? He says, anger does not produce righteousness, which is actually a synonym for justice. You cannot get to justice or righteousness through anger. It doesn't happen. It only leads you to Satan and destruction. I want to give you an application here. Remember how Arbeel and his, his news, right? Friends, you need to know that the news, part not all the news, but a lot of the news, especially those 24-hour cycle news, they want you to be angry. They want to fuel your anger and your bitterness and your fear and your anxiety about what's happening in the world. They pin it on different things, right? MSNBC, it's, it's those crazy conservatives. On Fox News, it's those libs. But at the heart, they're, they're both trying to get you to be angry. To be angry. And that is dangerous, friends. You should spend as much time in your Bible as you do on the news. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed. Now, what is the antidote to anger? What's the antidote to anger? So what do we do with this? Our spouse, our friends, our children tell us that we're angry. How do we go forward when imprisoned by bitterness? Now, anyone, first of all, anyone who admits that they have an anger problem, that is beautiful. Like when you begin, when you're able to admit like that you have a problem, that's actually a means of rejoicing. That means the Spirit is working on you, convicting you, bringing truth and beauty into your heart. We didn't spend time on verse 25, but it says, speak the truth to one another. Renewal involves speaking the truth about ourselves and others and about our anger. But then Paul moves into two antidotes for us. Look at verse 32. He says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiveness. That's the antidote to anger. Forgiving one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, I know this is basic Christianity, right? Forgiveness. But we badly need to hear this. After the shooting at UVA several months ago, Tim Keller wrote a piece in the New York Times about, quote, the fading of forgiveness in our culture. And he was warning that such a fading of forgiveness leads us to a culture in which there are more recriminations and score settling, which is what we see in shootings, right? We live in an angry culture. And, and Keller is saying, we need this principle, this ideal of forgiveness. What is forgiveness? It's the naming of the evil done to you and to choose not to hold it against them. It is to let go your anger and surrender your grievance. In his article, Keller references an Amish school shooting. Back in 2005, a, a shooter walked into an Amish school and shot 10 children and then committed suicide. And the Amish community, within hours, reached out to the shooter's family to grieve with them. That is the power of forgiveness. And Paul gives us the motivation and the model for this forgiveness. He says, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. When we are wronged, we remember that we have wronged not only others, but God himself. 
And yet God has forgiven us. A couple months ago, I was, I was prayer walking around Trinity's parking lot, and I was reciting my anger towards others. I just felt so abandoned and betrayed. And all of a sudden, the Spirit suddenly spoke to me so clearly. He said, oh, so you've never betrayed me. And in my mind's eye, I could see the cross of Christ, my Lord, who I have betrayed time and time again. You see that when we see ourselves, when we see the great depths of which we've been forgiven, we can forgive. We can forgive. If you are struggling to forgive, look to Christ's forgiveness for you and ask for a fresh sense of it. Friends, it is too easy to presume our state of forgiveness, to not feel it in our hearts. And forgiveness is a discipline. If you wait until you feel it, you will never forgive. You make a decision by faith to forgive. You choose to lay down your laundry list of wrongs done to you. And that leads us to our second antidote. Verse 31 says to put it away. Remove it. That's mortification language. That's put to death. Here's how you remove, put away sin. Repentance. You offer it to the Lord. You renounce it before God and you make a decision to no longer feed it. You cannot manage anger. There is no anger management for the Christian. Anger will end up managing you. There's only anger removal. So what does this look like? Well, let's say you hear her name mentioned and you feel your body bristling with bitterness. You pray in that moment, Lord, have mercy. And then in the next extended prayer time you have, you offer all the reasons that you feel bitter towards her. And then you forgive. Paul quotes Psalm 4 here. And I think the Psalms actually give us a really helpful metaphor, a really helpful model to deal with forgiveness. Several Psalms are actually prayers of anger. And the psalmist is reciting the anger, saying, these are all the reasons I'm angry. So friends, when you are angry, write it out. Write your prayers out. Often the Spirit will begin as you write to soften your heart as you get anger out of you. And then you write out your forgiveness before the Lord. It's a commitment. To write it out is to say, I am committed to forgiving this person. I'm committed to forgetting, to not holding this against them. Then when you're tempted to rehearse that bitterness once again, you have the commitment of the printed word. But what if the person never said sorry? What if they died? Some of us carry bitterness of our parents, how they treated us, siblings. It can get really complicated, right? We often equate forgiveness with reconciliation, with going to the person who's injured us, receiving their apology, and forgiving them. Now, that's, that's called reconciled forgiveness, and that is ideal. But Jesus gives us a broader application and imagination for forgiveness. Oftentimes, we are hurt by people who had no intention to sin against us. Perhaps there was no concrete sin. Maybe I'm just sensitive. I know that I'm sensitive. <laughs> Perhaps we are even confused in our hurt. 
Like, what if we are hurt by a corporate body and reconciliation seems impossible? Like, what if, hypothetically speaking, a whole lot of people left your church and you feel betrayed? The world is profoundly complex and is often fruitless to tease out the levels of guilt and sin. And we're not to, because God is the judge. We are not. And yet Jesus gives us this merciful rule in Mark eleven twenty five. He says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And uh, did you hear that? If you have anything against anyone, forgive. That's, that's living in an attitude of forgiveness. That's not reconciling forgiveness. Again, that's ideal. But we live as Christians with an attitude of forgiveness. And whenever we feel a check in our spirit, when we have something against someone, that is an opportunity to forgive. To forgive. Jesus, isn't that what Jesus did on the cross? Did Jesus confront the people who killed him? Or did he pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? Last point. I want to give you an alternative to anger. We've discussed how, da- how dangerous anger is. We've talked about the antidotes to anger of forgiveness, of repentance. But what of an alternative? Because there is wrong in the world to anger about, isn't there? Some of you are like, I still want to be angry. Our passage is sandwiched between two imperatives. Did you notice? Two imperatives to be like God. Look at verse 24. To put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. In other words, he's saying, put on the new self, which is made in the image. It it looks like God. And then look at chapter 5, verse 1. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Be like God. Imitate him. This life of renewal is one that looks like God. We are empowered in Christ to look like our daddy. So who is God? Let's return to his name. He says, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. First, you must know that God's anger is qualified by patience. He is not anger, angry. He is slow to anger, as should we. But it is mercy that is his first attribute. And I think that's, that's the alternative to anger. Mercy. Mercy. In his book, Good and Angry, which is a fantastic book. If you're angry, Good and Angry by David Pallison is a fantastic book. He argues that mercy covers much the same ground as anger. You see, mercy is also displeasure. Mercy does not say, hey, what you did was okay. It says, no, what you did was not okay. And yet, mercy recognizes the wrong, and that it's characterized by forgiveness and kindness and patience. All the things in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Put that all together and you have mercy. 
Mercy is kind. It wants good for the other. And mercy is profoundly tenderhearted. Right? It feels for your enemies. When we're angry, do we really want good for that other person? But mercy does. And mercy is not afraid of constructive conflict. God confronts us all the time in mercy and says, I will not let you go down that path of destruction. And it is out of love. Love. So mercy is the alternative for anger. And friends, that's the, God, that's the gospel. That the God who is rightly angered by our injustice and our unrighteousness had mercy on us. In love and mercy, Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross, taking the just anger of God so that it might be satisfied in a way that we might taste his mercy and kindness. On the cross, there is this perfect marriage of good anger and mercy, achieving the forgiveness of sins. I want want to offer you three final, very quick thoughts. First, the resurrection of Jesus from the cross has the power to remake our anger. Jesus did get angry, but why and when? Those are the key questions. Jesus angered at the religious leaders' oppression of the oppressed. He angered when the children were kept from him. And he angered when the Father's name was profaned and the Gentiles were kept from worship in the temple. His, in other words, his anger was not about himself. It was about others. It was about the Lord. In fact, when Jesus begins to get persecuted, when he's on the journey to the cross, all these insults coming at him, he's beat up. There's not an ounce of anger in him, is there? That's the model. Second, for those of you with anger problems, do not despair. The Father is not angered by your anger. He is patient. Keep coming to Him. After you yell, after you swear, after you curse, whoever it is in your heart, come back to the Lord and repent. He loves that. And my final thought, friends, we are destined for an angerless existence. Here's what the Lord is doing with you, with all of us who are in Jesus. He has designs to purge from us all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. That's what growth in the Christian life is. It's becoming less ruled by anger, becoming more self-controlled. Can you imagine not ever feeling anger again? Not a bitter thought or a mean word. And friends, even as Jesus is remaking you into his merciful image, he also promises to make all things right. All will be right and good because God will do away with all cause for anger. And even righteous anger will pass away. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you look down on us with such tenderness. Oh, Lord, some of us have much cause to be angry. And yet, Lord, none of us have as much cause as you. But you have had mercy on us. We pray that we would be like Jesus, who is not ruled by anger, 
but use his anger and love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.